Our reading today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 11 to verse 17, and that can be found on page 1015 of the Church Bibles, and it's also going to appear on the screens. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Well, if you can keep that passage open in front of you, we'll uh, take some time to look at it. But before we do, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time to spend in your word. And we pray that as we do, um, you would open our eyes to see you, Lord, that um, you'd open our ears to hear what you have to say to us today and our hearts to, to receive uh, your word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst, um, that you would uh, shape us and change us and uh, uh, reveal to us who you are and how you, we are to live. And uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, it has been uh, an interesting week to be a Christian in Scotland. Uh, you'll no doubt be aware that at the start of the week, uh, Kate Forbes, a committed Christian and member of the denomination that we're actually a part of, the Free Church of Scotland, uh, announced her intention to replace the outgoing Nicola Sturgeon as the First Minister and leader of the SNP. Almost immediately, uh, Miss Forbes for faced very specific questions about her beliefs on a range of social issues, and she gave her uh, best at giving some honest answers that were informed by her biblical perspective. Uh, she made it clear that those were her personal views as a Christian and that she would defend to the hilt the rights of those she disagreed with. But that did nothing to quell the media storm that followed. And if you've been tracking these, uh, this over the past week, it has been very interesting to see the way that this has been playing out. Kate Forbes has been uh, vilified and, and attacked by journalists and various intellectuals, and, and even senior members of her own party have sought to distance themselves from her. Uh, many have said that someone with uh, views like that shouldn't be able to be the leader of a political party in modern-day Scotland. And yet, as the week has gone on, it has been fascinating to see the response of people who, who perhaps fundamentally disagree with her views and yet admire her honesty and integrity in sharing them when asked. Now, I don't really want to get into the politics of it all, but I think that what we've seen play out over the past week is a great example of what it looks like to live out the passage that we're looking at today. When we see the way that someone is attacked for gently and honestly sharing her faith, uh, 
when we hear that such beliefs aren't welcome in our country, the temptation, uh, if we're Christians, is to keep silent, to bunker down in a holy huddle. But the reality of the Christian life is that it is meant to affect every aspect of our lives. We are a people who have been brought together by God to declare his mercy and grace to the world. And we cannot do that if we are intent on shutting the world out. But what does it mean for me and for you, if you're a Christian, uh, to live out your faith when you step out that door in a few minutes? What does it mean for the church to be engaged in a world where we are in the minority? Well, that's what Peter uh, deals with in this letter that he wrote to churches who were very much in a similar situation. They were very much living as outsiders in their culture, seen uh, as a fair game to be derided by society at large. In this middle section of the letter, he unpacks what it looks like for us to live as God's people in society, in the workplace, in the home, and in the church. And the key to understanding his instructions is found in verse 11 to 13 of chapter 2. In these verses, Peter focuses on two things that we are called to do in every sphere of life if we're Christians. And the first one is seen in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So in every area of life, he says that we are to resist the temptation to sin, the temptation to please ourselves rather than please God. And those temptations will, will vary depending on the different areas of life that we might be looking at and, and as he unpacks it in this letter. But, but not only are we to resist sin, secondly, we are to do good. We read verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, um, in this context, people who, who aren't believers, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. When it comes to how we live in society, in the workplace, and in the home, it's not just about um, avoiding sin. About, it's, it's about living in such a way that brings glory to God living in a way that causes those who don't yet know Jesus to sit up and take notice. That's what Peter's getting at in the rest of verse 12. He says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter recognized the opposition that his readers were facing. Their beliefs led those around them to accuse them of being enemies of society, a threat to the status quo. And those are certainly the tone of many of the accusations that we've seen flying about over the past week. But Peter urges his readers, live your lives in such a way that you challenge the common negative perception of Christianity. And it says people's assumptions are challenged and they're given cause to reassess their beliefs. It's then that the witness of God's people draws them to Jesus. 
so that on the day of his return, instead of denying him, they will be counted amongst his people. So he begins, Peter begins the, the middle section of this letter by giving a framework for how Christians are to live in every sphere of life. God's people are to resist sin and they are to do good so that God may be, may be glorified. Uh, and we're just going to take a wee bit of time to see how that framework plays out in the way that we're to live in society. Now, the message that's come across loud and clear and much of what's been said by those in positions of power over the past week is that Christian beliefs are not welcome in a liberal progressive Scotland. So in an increasingly secular society, how are we meant to relate to those who don't share our beliefs, and particularly those who are in power over us? Well, Peter's readers, they were in a similar situation. They needed to know how to live their lives under leaders who could be hostile to their beliefs. And here in this section of the letter, Peter guides them on how a Christian is to respond to the state's authority. And interestingly, that response, it begins with a call to submission. We read verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, the word submit has very negative connotations. Uh, we live in an age where self-expression and self-fulfillment are the order of the day. And submission is seen as a real sign of weakness. It conjures up the image of someone who is resigned to their fate, a, a doormat ready to be walked all over, someone unwilling to stand up for their rights. But that's not how the Bible speaks about submission. Here Peter is calling his readers not to passive acceptance of their situation, but to a proactive decision to live under those who rule over them, to choose to live in such a way that honors the authority that they've been given. He says that submission to every human institution is for the Lord's sake. In other words, the Christian is to live under authority as an expression of their obedience to God. And that's because according to the Bible, every human authority has been placed there by God. We read in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. It's very easy uh, to find ourselves grumbling and complaining about the leaders that we sit under. But the Christian is called to recognize that all authority is, in a sense, God-given. It's permitted by him. And Peter's call to obedience extends far beyond simply good and God-honoring leaders. Peter calls his readers to live under the rule of, verse 13, the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Now, the emperor at that time was the emperor Nero. Uh, he was a, a cruel, evil leader who was violently hostile to Christians. And he was ultimately probably responsible for Peter's own execution. Uh, and here is Peter calling his readers to submit to him and to those who enact his laws. Now, how can that be right? Surely evil leaders should never be submitted to. 
Well, notice verse 14. Even evil leaders can enact laws that punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. You see, even if our leaders don't share our beliefs, they can still put laws in place that help us fulfill Peter's exhortation to resist sin. You know, we can be grateful for laws in our society that act as a deterrent to sin. We can be thankful for laws that punish those who abuse or murder or steal. Imagine, imagine a society where none of those laws existed, where anarchy reigned and people could just do whatever they liked without any fear of any consequences. You know, the fact that there are laws that restrain and limit those things and that there are rulers uh, who enact those laws, that is a good gift from God and something for us to give thanks for. God has instituted all human authority because he knows the sinfulness of the human heart. He knows the need for law and order to restrain sin. So even ungodly rulers operate as God's servants when they administer laws that restrain sin. But what are we meant to do when those authorities are blatantly opposed to God's will. Well, Peter deals with that in verse 17. He writes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I notice the repetition of the word honor there. Peter says, honor everyone and honor the emperor. At that time, the Roman emperor, he wasn't just a, a, a mighty ruler. He was considered to be a god. But in verse 17, Peter puts him in his place. He puts him in the same category as, as everyone else. He's human, like everyone else. And he deserves respect, like everyone else. But only God is to be feared. Only God is to be revered. He is the one who has ultimate authority. He's the one who gives all earthly rulers their power. And he's the one who takes it away. The reason that we submit to earthly rulers in the first place is to honor God. So if by our submission we would do something that dishonors him, well then we appeal to our higher authority. Uh, being submissive to our rulers, it does not mean that we cannot challenge policies that we disagree with. In fact, there are many laws that may be unjust, laws that, that work against human flourishing, which, which ought to be challenged. And, and Christians have, of course, done that successfully in the past. In this country, uh, the campaign to uh, abolish slavery was led by the Christian politician William Wilberforce. He's a great example of that. But as we challenge unjust laws, our posture as Christians is to be citizens who are gentle and humble, who honor the earthly authorities that we live under. But remember, we're not just called to resist sin. We're also called to do good. What does that look like when it comes to how we live out our lives in society? Well, Peter says that when we live lives of submission, we obey the will of God. And it's God's will, verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. As God's people obey the law, as they as they live as good citizens, they silence the charge that they are evildoers. Their lives give a contrary testimony to the popular impression of Christians as troublemakers. But what does that actually look like? What does it look like to live 
good lives. Well, it's not simply about just obeying the law. It's to live as people who are free, a people who are servants of God. And as God's servants, we are called to live in such a way that we point those around us to Jesus. That means that we should be known for our practical care and our compassion, our love for our neighbors. We should be the kind of people who would be missed if we weren't there. The word Peter uses for good in verse 15, it can also mean beautiful or attractive. And that's what our lives are meant to be. Lives that attract people to Jesus. Lives that soften opposition to the gospel by submitting to those in authority over us. Lives that, that, that soften hostility by living out a way that is contrary to the perception. And for me, one of the most encouraging things about the past week is the number of people who have responded positively to the glimpse of Jesus that they have seen in a Christian's witness in the public sphere. Now, I'm sure most of them don't know that that is what they've been seeing. But they know that they are seeing something special, something attractive. Uh, one of Scotland's leading historians, the professor emeritus at Edinburgh University, Tom Devine, he wrote these words in the, the Herald newspaper uh, about Kate Forbes this week. He said this, She deserves our respect for her courage, integrity, and steadfast personal commitment to her own religious and moral principles. How unique is that in the often craven world of modern politics? In the past few days, this able young woman has been crucified in the media by an almost hysterical and even possibly orchestrated chorus of condemnation by some so-called progressives. For most, unusually and refreshingly in today's world, having the guts to speak her mind on major issues which concern us all as humans. And what I think we've seen over the, the past week is First Peter in action. A gentle, humble, faithful witness that gives people a glimpse of our humble king. Now, we've seen this week that that kind of witness, it will not meet with universal approval. Even when we follow Peter's instructions here, that does not mean that we will be immune from suffering and hostility. In fact, being faithful to, to Christ will often intensify things. And that's why it's so important that we, we look to the one who suffered before us. Peter writes, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we face opposition, when we face harsh treatment for our faith, we can look at the example of Jesus. Jesus, even though he was completely innocent, even though he was falsely accused and mocked and abused, he refused to react. He refused to respond in anger. He refused to seek revenge. Instead, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father, to the one who judges justly. And it's that same God that we look to when we suffer for our faith in society. We can remember that God, he sees all things. 
every slight, every false accusation, every injustice. And one day, he will put all things right. And like Jesus, even in the face of the most hostile situations, we can entrust our situation to the one who judges justly. But we don't just look to Jesus as our example. He is the ultimate example. But even more importantly than that, he's also our savior. We don't just look to the one who suffered before us. We look to the one who suffered for us. Peter writes, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So, so Peter's quoting there from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, famous uh, chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And it's a prophecy that speaks of how God's chosen servant went to his death as a substitute for sinful people. And as he quotes Isaiah, Peter is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Even though he was completely free from sin, even though he never deserved to die, Jesus was willing to bear the punishment for those who have strayed from God, from our ultimate authority. People like you and me. On the cross, Jesus bore the just judgment of God for anyone who would trust in him. He submitted himself to the unjust judgment of evil earthly rulers so that anyone who puts their faith in him might know the mercy of our heavenly ruler. We can know what it is to belong to the one who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And the wonderful news for anyone who belongs to him is that we are freed to die to sin and to live to righteousness. That's what Peter says. We can resist sin because he has made us his. He's broken the hold that sin has over us. And even when we face persecution and opposition and hostility and uh, harsh words, we can do good. We can respond with love and compassion and patience and kindness and gentleness and respect because that's exactly what Jesus did when he went to his death on the cross for us. And it's as we live like that, empowered by his spirit, that the world gets to see something that it won't see anywhere else. A glimpse of Jesus in the life of his people that will draw some to know him too. Well, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you. You're a God of mercy and grace, that you have poured out your mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Lord Jesus was willing to suffer uh, the taunts, the abuse, the the wickedness of evil leaders so that we might know what it is to be forgiven, 
so that we might know what it is to be free, so that we might know what it is to be blameless before our heavenly ruler. We pray, Lord God, that we would uh, take to heart his example and we would also take to heart and trust in what he has done as our Savior. Help us, Lord God, by your Spirit to resist the temptation to respond to, to hostility with hostility. And give us hearts that long to, to do good, to love our neighbors. We pray that at this time in our country where um, our faith is uh, right in the middle of all that's going on in the news right now, um, Lord, perhaps in the week ahead, there may be times where we're asked what we think. Lord, please, would you give us boldness to, to speak lovingly, gently, but truthfully about who we are and what we believe. And would you use those opportunities and times to, to, to draw people to you that they might find out about the grace and the forgiveness and the hope of eternal life there is in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we come to take bread and wine now and remember the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus made, uh, that you would refresh us again. Would you strengthen our faith um, to live for you in the week ahead? And we pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.